restoring America's soul. So how do we go about doing it? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Do you remember when it used to mean something to be a born-again Christian, to say that you were born again, to say that you love Jesus, to say that he was your Lord? Do you remember when that used to mean something or matter? Yeah, uh, we've come a long way since then here in America. This is Michael Brown. You've tuned into the line of fire. Here's number to call, 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866 Let me tell you where we're going on the show today. I want to talk to you first about how the whole idea of following Jesus is just completely trashed now. It's almost you could do anything and say you're a follower of Jesus. It's it's quite extraordinary. I want to talk about that. I want to open the phone lines for anything you want to ask me about. Anything you want to talk about. You want to weigh in more on the Donald Trump situation with the tweets racist or not. If a Bob-related question, you want to challenge me on something, phone lines are open, 866-348-7884. And then at the bottom of the hour, I will be joined by Rita Dunaway. We're going to talk about her book, Restoring America's Soul. You're going to be edified, helped, and encouraged by that. Oh, oh, I also want to give you a little update on my forthcoming Jezebel book, Jezebel's War with America, which comes out August 6th. 866-348-7884 is the number to call. All right. <clears throat> Obviously, I have thought many hundreds and thousands of times about the denigrating of the gospel in America, of the downgrading of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, of how virtually anything goes you can be a follower of jesus and do just about anything i mean you'll you'll see something and maybe some actor or actress becomes famous for a vulgar vulgar sex-filled movie one you'd never dream of seeing and then you hear their testimony and know how the, they love jesus and they've been following jesus for years it's like and and you did that movie and then you see, you know, someone else may profane rapper and every other word out of their mouth, profanity and how they love clubbing and, you know, strip clubs and all this. And, oh, yeah, and Jesus is my Lord and he changed my life. It's like, huh? One thing to be a babe, one thing to be brand new, one thing to not know better and be growing step by step in Jesus. Another thing entirely, another thing entirely when you are claiming to, to be a committed Christian for years and living in all kinds of compromise. So what got me on this subject again, and I, I wrote an article, uh, you can read it on our website or on stream.org. The, the show The Bachelorette, I've never seen The Bachelor or Bachelorette, but apparently the gal who's The Bachelorette claims to be a committed Christian. And there's another guy on the show, committed Christian, so they've had a falling out over the fact that he said no sex before marriage. And she's like, uh, you know, I don't want you in my life. I don't want to marry you. And look, she said I, she had sex with with uh, a guy, you know, uh, another one of the contestants. 
and she had sex with him twice, and she said, you know, Jesus still loves me. And I thought, isn't this utterly remarkable? Isn't this utterly remarkable? You have sex out of wedlock. You, you, you talk about it on national TV, but of course Jesus still loves me. Someone tweeted back to me as they read my article, but does she love Jesus? Now, God's her judge, not me. And my hope is that either she doesn't know the Lord at all and will really come to know him, or she is a babe, very superficial, and when she really deepens her knowledge of the Lord, then that'll produce holiness of heart and life. But these days, you can do anything and say you're a follower of Jesus. I, I mean, it used to be something that, that meant serious commitment. It used to mean something that meant a changed life. It used to mean something that, that spoke of a difference. Now it's like, hey, whatever, whatever. Follower of Jesus one day and next day partying and clubbing and drinking and having sex and hey Jesus still loves me okay Jesus still loves us that doesn't mean we haven't grieved him Jesus still loves us that doesn't mean there's not consequences to sin Jesus still loves us doesn't mean he won't discipline us in fact because he loves us he will discipline us because he loves us he will deal with us and correct us and rebuke us. That's what it says in Hebrews 12, doesn't it? That, that the sign that you're illegitimate is that you're not disciplined. And that if you really have a father, the father will discipline you. And, and if, if you're born to someone that you're just out of wedlock and they don't care about you and they're not raising you as a father or mother, so you're undisciplined, you have real parents, they will lovingly discipline you that's what God does for his children. I'm not wishing evil on anyone. I live by the mercy of God 24-7 just like you do. I live by the goodness of God, not by the goodness of Mike Brown. I live by the faithfulness of God, not the faithfulness of Mike Brown. I live by grace. I also know that that grace produces change in our lives. And that as changed believers, we now follow Jesus and live differently. And... As James Edwin Orr, the great revival scholar of the last generation, said, the only proof of the new birth is the new life. Consistently, the New Testament speaks of a changed life. When Paul was summarizing his message to Herod in Acts 26.20, he said, I preach that people should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Let's see if you really mean it. Let's see if your repentance is sincere, if you are truly turning to the Lord. 2 Timothy 2.19, let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Matthew 7.21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Messiah, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. All has become new. All has become new includes behavior, includes lifestyle. There are other things in that context as well. No, none of us are perfect. All of us, even on our best day, fall short of God's perfection. At the same time, he calls us to holiness. At the same time, he calls us to obedience. At the same time, sin always has negative consequences. So, does Jesus love us? Yes. Because of his love, he'll deal with us. Does Jesus love us? Yes. But do we love him? 
what does he say in John 14? If you love me, you keep my commandments. So the, the proof of a life that loves the Lord is a life of keeping the commandments. Oh, no, not the Sinai covenant, but the commandments of Jesus and the New Testament. That's the proof. That's the fruit. 866-348-7884. Just want to share that with you. All right, I'm going to go to the phones, change subjects, and we'll start with Jason in Ohio. Welcome to the line of fire. How you doing? Doing well. Thank you, Jason. Great. Thank you for your ministry. And my question is, could you talk a little bit about your longest season that you might label a wilderness? And then how did you get through it? And then any details that, that are appropriate for a, for a large audience? Yeah. Well, thank you, Jason, uh, for, for a very profound question. There have been distinct seasons in my life in the Lord. And over, over the decades, there, of course, are, are mountaintops and valleys. In the late 70s, early 80s, as I was pursuing my, my doctoral degree, I left my first love, even though I was still a committed Christian. I, I left that early intimacy and devotion that I had, and God really had to deal with me, bring me to repentance, and reignite the fire. But that, to me was not a conscious wilderness experience that I was passing through. That was just not being aware of certain things I had, I had walked away from. But I'm thinking of a few seasons. Uh, one season where I, I came under severe demonic attack that I would identify as Jezebel, meaning the demonic forces that operated through Queen Jezebel attacking me and it was a season of of months of about five months of ongoing intense spiritual oppression of uh, physical health attacks on nancy on both of us getting bombarded by lies from the enemy we only found out how fully we're getting bombarded when we compared notes afterwards because the kind of things you don't even talk about you know when you're getting hit wow. with and you know, I've always loved to preach since I started preaching in 73, but I dreaded it then. I didn't want to speak. I, I was, was feeling intimidated spiritually, which I never do. I felt emasculated. I felt I had no spiritual authority. And I remember going to speak in another state, and it took me several hours of prayer just to get my head above water. In other words just to get to the point where I felt normal. Now I had to pray to get ready to preach and bring a message. And it, it was, the pressure was like nothing we had ever experienced. That's, that's part of what undergirds me in writing this book, Jezebel's War with America. I've, I've had, you could say, hand-to-hand -hand combat experience with these same demonic forces. And the only thing I knew to do was, one, keep my guard up, because I knew the enemy wanted to take me down. So it was to be aware of the fact that the enemy was going to be trying to take me down one way or another and to be alert, to keep my guard up, walk in holiness before the Lord, and to keep pressing in in prayer and then ultimately in fasting until the breakthrough came. It's the type of thing when you're in the middle of the battle, Jason, you can't stop, you can't quit. It's 
like you're out, you're in a bunker on the front lines in, in, in war. You can't say, hey, time out right now. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. There's no going backwards. Going backward, you get destroyed. So all I need to do is press in, press in, press in, and then finally, with fasting, the thing was supernaturally broken by the Lord. One other thing, I've had extended times over the years where God puts a dream or a vision in me. He speaks to me about it. I know it's him. He puts a hunger in me to pursue it. it, it we, we get like a deposit, a down payment that it's going to happen, but then it doesn't happen for years. And that produces agony of spirit. That produces hours and hours of praying and crying out and seeking and longing and, and, and fasting and wondering, did I hear God? And then finally, the breakthrough comes. And when it comes, it's glorious. So all this ultimately can produce greater hunger, thirst, desperation. It can be used for bad or it can be redeemed for good. By God's grace, it's been redeemed for good in my life. Thank you for the question, Jason. We'll be right back. Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire. This is Michael Brown, 866-348-7884. I just want to make one more statement about this whole Jezebel thing. I'm not talking about a person. I'm not talking about a person. I'm talking about the same demonic powers that operated through Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament. You read about her in 2 Kings. Those uh, same demonic powers, excuse me, 1 Kings. Those same demonic powers that operated through her operate today as well. All right? Same demons, same Satan, And there are characteristics of how the enemy moves, which is why Jesus references Jezebel in the New Testament. Was it a woman actually by that name in Revelation 2? Could be. Or many scholars would say probably the name he gave this false prophetess. You're just like Jezebel. Got it? So, so, point is that this stuff is real, friends. There really is demonic warfare. My focus is on Jesus. My focus is on the Lord. I'm not looking for a demon under every rock. When I pray, my focus is on the Lord. I commune with him. At the same time, I recognize there is a real spiritual realm. At the same time, I recognize there are genuine demonic powers. At the same time, I understand that we're in a battle. And if you've not yet gone to JezebelsWarWithAmerica.com, trust me, take a moment to go there. Take a moment to go there. When you pre-order the book, so whatever online source you use to pre-order, they're all listed there. Go back to that site with your proof of purchase. You'll get the ebook free. Then you'll get the ebook for playing with holy fire free. Then you get another mini ebook free. And then some video audio resources for your over $50 of materials the publisher put together. I, I was amazed. I just never saw a publisher getting behind a book this much saying, we really want to get this out. We want to bless people that pre-order as well. So JezebelsWarWithAmerica.com. And the moment you, you do it there, you'll also get the th- first three chapters in PDF form. We had a friend the other day, uh, got the first chapters and emailed immediately said, my sister just ordered seven copies of the book. I said, how far did you get? She said, preface and first chapter. 
But she was so excited, told her sister who ordered seven copies. And, and someone saw my interview on this on Sid Roth's show that's airing this week. And I just, I happened to spot this link. I don't know how it's random. I just happened to spot it. This one website, I'm, I'm not going to give them the time of day by, by mentioning the name, that they're now comparing me to Joseph Smith. Isn't it terrible? What, you, you've got to pity these folks. Do you have nothing else to do with your life? Wow. Comparing me to Joseph Smith, because I talked about feeling this tremendous inspiration to write this book and moved on by God, this fire in my hands as I was writing. Yeah, how many poets have felt inspiration by God to write a, a poem or songwriters inspiration by God? Or you, you can't write fast enough. You know, Handel's Messiah. I'm not comparing my book to Handel's Messiah. You couldn't write fast enough to get the musical scores. How, how many authors have felt that? Pastors, preachers get this message. Man, I feel like my hands are on fire just writing down as fast as I can. We're not claiming divine inspiration like the Bible. <sighs> anyway, another good sign that even the critics that should be rooting for this and saying, amen, get the message out, brother. They're now attacking. Another good sign. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Brett in Concord, North Carolina. Thanks for calling. Hey, Dr. Brown. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. Well, um, I thought about you recently because I was, I was watching a documentary on PBS, and it was talking about the Stonewall riots that happened in 69. With yeah, 50, the gay 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyways, they, they had an interview from someone right during that time frame, and they talked about how they just basically wanted to be left alone. And, uh, and they said, we don't want to have, you know, maybe there are a few fringe people who want gay marriage, but, you know, that's, that's really not where we're going. Or, and he listed a couple of other things to say, we're really no threat. Um, and it, it made me think of your book, uh, Go and Sin No More, where, and I'm not going to get this totally right, but uh, to paraphrase what you said, that sin will take you further than you ever thought you would go, and it'll keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. And, and, and cost, you more, me. cost you more than you intended to pay. Yeah, that's not my line. Okay, that's yeah. someone else. But yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. So yeah, it just, it just was striking to me that, that that interview was with that man, and he said, no, no, we, we just want to be left alone. Yep. But but now here we are 50 years later, and the advocacy for, you know, in high schools for, you know, the boys and girls to have to be in the same locker rooms together, and just a whole host of other things. Exactly. And just, I, I just wanted to let you know that I just uh, appreciate your ministry and just the way that you speak the truth about things, and, uh, and just that you can see and warn about the trends that are going on, so... Anyways, I just appreciate you and your insight and way that Thank you, you sir. Uh, minister to the body uh, by just being intimate with the Lord. Thank you so much. And Brett, let me just say this in response. Uh, in my book, A Queer Thing Happened to America, which came out in 2011, that was the result of six years of research study interacting with gay and lesbian community. The last chapter was GLBT and beyond. Now, now we always say LG. In those days, G was often first, but GLBT and beyond. In other words, where's this going? You read that chapter now, eight years later, and you think everything you talked about there, that's just normal now. And there's no question, sir, that there were many among the early rioters and those sympathetic with Stonewall 
that just wanted to be left alone. I have no question. And to this day, there are many that identify as, as homosexual, just want to be left alone. And their thing was, look, if you can have your relationships, we want to have ours. If We want to be able to hold hands in public like you hold hands in public and just nobody bother us. And not get fired from a job because we're gay or something. Just let us live. No question that that was the heart of many. At the same time, it was the heart of many others to see a societal revolution. And you can read their writings. You can read their demands from early on. Even a, a major homosexual platform going back to 1972 and, and, and you know, lowering the age of consent and things like that. Some just wanted to declare war on marriage sort of as a patriarchal relic of the past. And others, others actually said, no, 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 we want to transform all these things. Plus, either way, once you go in the wrong direction with a society, once you go in the wrong direction, it will go farther than you planned to go. And the consequences will be things you never signed up to. So many Americans... They just thought, well, why can't if two men love each other, two women, and that's how they've always been? They're, why can't they come together? And, and I understand the sympathy saying, look, you know, they're nice people. Why? It's my son and his boyfriend. And why can't they? I understand people saying that. They didn't, these same people didn't sign up for drag queens reading the toddlers in libraries. They didn't sign up for a 15-year-old boy showering next to their daughter in the locker room and beating her out of a scholarship on, on a, a track and field team. They didn't sign up for that, and they didn't sign up for the all-out war on religious freedoms. So, Brett, you're absolutely right, but thank you for the kind words. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go over to Amy in Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Uh, How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Awesome. I'm actually uh, from Pensacola, so we have that in common. I'm a born-again believer as a result of the uh, revival there. So Praise God. Um, so glad to hear that. Yes, amen. So, I guess um, my husband and I have been talking a lot. We were followers of your ministry, so thank you so much for it. Um, we thought it would be interesting. Have you ever considered doing a debate with maybe um, somebody like Ben Shapiro? Oh, yeah, I do it in a heartbeat. Um yeah, in a heartbeat, I would. And, and he knows that. Uh, a lot of people suggest it and, and send messages to him to do it. I emailed him, I think, last year and said, hey, uh, from my understanding, you probably don't want to do this. But I constantly get asked by people uh, what I do a debate with Ben Shapiro about Jesus or about Jewish beliefs about Jesus or things like that. And I said, you know, uh, what I'd love to do it, but. I assume you wouldn't. And he wrote back for immediately, you know, uh, thanks, Dr. Brown, um, but I don't really enjoy religious debates. And that was it. Now, maybe he's had a change of heart on that. Maybe it's just a little too close as a Messianic Jew that he won't want to do it. But I do it in a heartbeat. I would, uh, if the Lord willed it, that I was debating issues on CNN every night, you know, with, with liberals, mm-hmm. I'd do it in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. If the Lord willed it, that I was... Uh, engaging with with secular scholars or thinkers from different perspectives. Yeah, I do it in a heartbeat. Often right. when I'm asked to speak on a college like, campus, Amy, I, I, I tell them, get, get a debate instead, but they can't find someone to debate me. So if the Lord opened the door, right. I do it in Joe a heartbeat. Joe Rogan would be another good one. Yeah, well, listen, here's the thing to do. My ambition is to please the Lord. 
my ambition is to see Jesus yeah. glorified. And we were just praying about this as, as a staff and team before that if if the whole world knows the name of Jesus and forgets our name, then we've succeeded. You know, that's that's wonderful. But I'm why do I would joyfully go on any of these settings? Now, I wouldn't go on a Howard Stern just because it's it's the whole thing is polluted. And what they're going to talk about is stuff we don't want to talk about. You just put yourself in a no-win position. But to be on a show where the guy used a lot of profanity like Joe Rogan or some other secular venue, if, if they would have me on, we speak honestly, candidly, yeah, in a heartbeat, gladly, with joy. I believe God desires to open those doors for us, but that's his doing. We'll pursue him and seek to walk through the doors set before us with, with excellence by his grace. All right. Thanks for the call, Amy. God willing, I'll be back in Pensacola this, what, early September. All right. We'll be right back with Rita Dunaway. your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. We often focus on very important issues that are kind of micro issues. And sometimes we're unable to look at the bigger picture or some other important national solutions, some of which very much tie in with the law or larger conservative principles. My guest today, Rita Dunaway, has written a book, Restoring America's Soul, Advancing Timeless Conservative Principles in a Wayward Culture. Rita's an attorney. She's focused on constitutional law. She's worked with Alliance Defending Freedom, Rutherford Institute, National Legislative Strategist now for the Convention of States Project. So some large, important issues we want to talk about. This is Michael Brown. I won't be taking calls during this part of the broadcast, but this is something that is relevant, useful for all of us. So, Rita, so good to have you on the line of fire for the first time. I am excited to be here. Thanks for having me on your program. Well, absolutely my joy. Uh, Let me ask you first how you got into the career focus that is now such an important part of your life. Well, you know, I... I guess it started for me back in college, and I just remember in my very first constitutional law class as an undergraduate even, going through the course thinking, what is it that I'm missing here? Because there seems to be this disconnect between what the Constitution says and what our government today is actually doing. And so that really inspired me to, to dig deeper and try to figure out where that disconnect was coming from and what could be done about it. And in addition to that, I've always been really concerned about religious freedom and the erosion of religious freedom in our country. So those two things really kind of drove me to law school and um, pointed me in the direction of first the Rutherford Institute then Alliance Defending Freedom, where I, where I do volunteer work, um, and now, of course, the Convention of States Project. 
Sarita, let, let me ask you a question that should be redundant, but in our day is a genuine question. What's the big deal with the Constitution? I mean, that's a few hundred years yeah. ago. And sure, I mean, we started like an important thing, but why, why are we living by this ancient document? I mean, it's, that's, that's old school now. It's a new day. Why is the Constitution so important? Yeah, you know, first I have to remark on the fact that you're so right. That is a genuine question today, whereas, you know, even probably 50 or 60 years ago, that would have been unthinkable, because as you and I know, the Constitution is the blueprint. It's the operating manual for our government. It's what we, the people, agreed to give power to our federal government. Um, because we are people with natural rights, God-given rights, rights that we were given by our Creator that didn't come from the government. And we, as people with natural rights, agreed to give up this small portion of our freedom in order to have a government to protect our rights and ensure our freedom to pursue happiness. And so the answer to your question is, We talk all the time in our society, even still today, about the rule of law. So if we care at all about living in a society where we have the rule of law rather than rule by the whims of judges, legislators, or even presidents, then we need to care deeply about whether our government is respecting the Constitution because that's the document that gives it power. Got it. Got it. All right, so Rita, you start off your book, Restoring America's Soul, talking about your own conservative awakening. I'm, I'm a conservative because of my biblical faith. I, I do social commentary that comes out of me being in ministry. So it, it's, it's not like I was raised with a conservative philosophical mindset or I could articulate, you know, what are the best conservative principles for government and things like that. But, but in your mind, there's a clear connection between the right direction of our government and conservatism. So what do you mean when you talk about your own conservative awakening? Does that mean that you, you bought a gun, joined the NRA? I mean, what does it, what does it mean? It's so stereotyped today. What actually happened to you? Yeah. Well, I was actually raised in a conservative family and grew up hearing my parents talk about conservative values. And, you know, I grew up in the faith as, as, a, as a Christian. And so the values of conservatives politically have always been my values. But the awakening for me came just a few years back, really, even though, you know, I've been a conservative all along, I started to reflect on, well, why is it that a person who holds the, you know, political views that I do, why are we called conservatives? And, you know, I had the experience of hearing a conservative leader tell me that conservatives are people who don't like change. And I thought, you know, I don't really like that description. I would not mm-hmm. put myself in that basket. I don't think that's a good way to describe it. So that started me really thinking, what, why am I called a conservative and what does that mean? And as I discuss in the book, I think the best explanation or definition I've found is that a conservative 
in a true sense of the word, is a conserver of the things that we hope to keep in our mm. society, a conserver of things that are good in our culture and in our government. And I would say a conservative is someone who believes that our founding fathers in America got it right. You know, not that they were perfect, not that they were unflawed by any means, because we know that they had their flaws and they made mistakes, but they were on to something with the blueprint that they put together for our government. They got it right. Got it. So conserving the things that we want to keep. So the conservative movement, if, if you speak broadly in America, it's taken some hits in recent years, what have what have we done wrong? What's happened that has tarnished our character or our effectiveness in, in the culture? Well, and that's really one of the things that inspired me to write the book is that I I feel like we have a blind spot in in some ways when it comes to recognizing that that we haven't done everything right, and I think we have gone off course a little bit. And I think the biggest problem, our biggest failing right now as a movement is that we have become understandably frustrated with what's happening in politics and in our government with how far our government has strayed from its legitimate constitutional power. We're all frustrated by that, and that's understandable. But the problem is I think that our frustration has led us largely in one of two directions. Either we start to grumble, complain, and adopt a a really snarky tone when we talk about public policy, or on the other hand, I think some conservatives have just kind of gone underground, and we're not talking anymore at all because we've kind of given up on um, doing any sort of real reform in our government and our culture, and that's a real shame. We need to become more active not less when we see our country going downhill. And we need to raise our standards, not lower them. And I would have to add in this regard, too, that I think um, President Trump has presented a big challenge for the conservative movement. I, I myself have such mixed feelings about him. He has done some wonderful things for this country, and I am I am very happy with a lot of his performance, his policies, you know, the work that he's done to protect life in America and around the country, to protect religious freedom. We should all be very grateful. On the other hand, a lot of the things that he says and does don't reflect my values as a Christian and as a conservative. You know, there's a There's a lack of humility. Sometimes there's a lack of graciousness and kindness. And I think it gives conservatives a bad name, and we should be concerned about that. All right, so so that brings up a a big topic. Friends, I'm speaking with Rita Dunaway, her book, Restoring America's Soul. And that's the idea that, look, politics is so mixed. The swamp is so deep Whoever you elect is going to fail somewhere. Even if the person is ideal, you've got to go through a party and there's so much party politics and red tape and nothing's ever going to change. So what? just preach the gospel, love your family and your kids, seek to be a good witness on your job. But forget the, the, America is 
always going to be messed up with government. I mean, that's the way a lot of people feel, a certain cynicism. Uh, what would you say to that attitude that, look, government itself is just so corrupt and there's so much red tape and the swamp is so deep and party politics and all this and then f- flawed individuals leading? Why even bother? How would you respond to that? Well, those are exactly the people that I want to talk to. Please do. And I would say, yeah, first of all, yes, preach the gospel. That's the most important thing. Nothing nothing is more important than that, because the government is not going to save anyone's soul. Mm -hmm. And we know that. Um, So we can't stop doing that. We can't stop taking care of our families and our neighbors and being community-minded. But I would remind in particular, the Christians who are listening to this program, that we are called to love our neighbor. And as Americans, we are given the privilege, the responsibility of being involved in government, in the policies it sets and the decisions that it makes. And because we have that privilege and responsibility we are not doing everything we can do to love our neighbor if we are willing to turn our back on that whole process just because we're frustrated or because it's hard. So I would submit that as a Christian, that can't be an option for us. Got it. Yeah, and, and you know, Rita, what I always deal with is the question, okay, so then we abdicate. Now things go downhill even more rapidly now we're even more upset. We've got more issues. It's affecting our kids. It's affecting our liberties. And, and we realize now we have to stand. We have to get involved. And at that point, we're already five steps too far back. All right. We're going to continue speaking with Rita Dunaway. The book, Restoring America's Soul, Advancing Timeless Conservative Principles in a Wayward Culture. By the way, if we have time, I just want to ask Rita... Why does the Electoral College matter? Should we just go to a majority vote? Not sure if we'll have time, but we'll see if we get there. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire. Speaking, speaking with attorney Rita Dunaway, her book, Restoring America's Soul, is divided into three parts. Part one, a conservative identity crisis. And part two, tough issues persuasive conservatism and tough issues she lists there are caring for the poor protecting religious liberty the savvy pro-lifer and the natural marriage worth conserving these are issues obviously near and dear to to our hearts and many of them we focused on talked about on the air what so that's of great interest to me in the book then the part three is two strategies for restoring america's soul putting government back in its place and restoring a culture of virtue and, and I really want to focus on these these last two issues in, in the book here. Um, Rita, you talk in your book about a convention of states. Many of us don't even know what that is, what you're referring to, and, and how that ties in with a strategy to restore America's soul. So please explain what this is and then why it could be so important. I'd be happy to. Well, Article 5 is the part of the Constitution that outlines 
the ways that we can amend the Constitution, because the Founding Fathers foresaw that there would be a need for that at some point. They knew they weren't perfect. And so there are two ways of doing it, and we've only in America ever used one of the two ways, and that's to have Congress propose amendments, and then those amendments go to the states, and it takes 38 of the states to ratify an amendment proposal. The other route, the one that we've never used before, allows the states to come together in what's called a convention. It's effectively just a meeting of state delegations, and then the state delegations propose constitutional amendments to deal with particular problems on particular topics, which then again gets sent back to the states, and again it takes 38 states to ratify an amendment proposal. The reason this is so important today is because we have a huge problem in this country with federal overreach. And Mm -hmm. as I mentioned before, the the government operating in Washington, D.C. today is not the government that's outlined in the Constitution. I mean, you would never guess by just reading the Constitution that our federal government would be doing all the things that it's doing today. It's, it's eating up all of the power, invading the prerogatives of the state. And by the way, the cost of it doing that is this incredible, immoral national debt that is mm. going to be on the backs of our children and grandchildren for generations. So the reason Article 5 is so important today is because that federal overreach that we see, the way that has come about is by perversion of constitutional language. And I'll just name a couple of examples. The General Welfare Clause, the Commerce Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause. Because those clauses use broad language, you know, Congress can tax and spend for the general welfare. Well, so Congress and the courts now interpret that to mean Congress can tax and spend for anything it thinks is a good idea, period. Mm. And that's not what was ever intended. So that's where Article 5 comes in, is that by using that Article 5 process, the state can come together and put this check on federal power by proposing an amendment, for example, that would restore the original meaning of the General Welfare Clause by further limiting it and saying, you know, no, the General Welfare Clause doesn't mean you can tax and spend on anything you like. It means you can tax and spend in order to carry out your specific powers in the Constitution. Right. So so this is, is so foreign to so many of us. And yet we're talking about massive governmental issues. And, and friends, even though there are micro topics that the book t- uh, touches on, if you're talking about caring for the poor, you're talking about caring for individuals, there's still larger issues that are affecting America. And without addressing some of the larger issues, it's difficult to, to solve some of the ongoing specific problems. Rita, uh, you're obviously younger than me. I'm 64. You're quite a bit younger than me. You've grown up in a bit of a different world than I grew up in. Do you have hope? Do you have hope that America's soul can be restored and that there can be a blessed future for our country? I do have hope in that. But I I have to be clear that I think in order for that to happen, 
it will involve using both of these strategies that I outlined, you know, just in general, it's going to require reforming government, but it also absolutely requires reforming our culture. And the government piece, I think, is so important because today I see generations of people who look to government as an idol. They look to government as the provider of their needs, the securer of their welfare, the giver of good things, and that was never intended to be the role of government. And it exalts government to the place of effectively a god for so many people. So we've got to get rid of the idea that government is god. We've got to knock it down from that idol status. But also the culture, you know, our, our culture is so degraded today. And I have to say, it, it never bothered me nearly as much as it does now until I became a parent. Mm. And when I look and see what my kids are exposed to, walking through a shopping mall, they're mm-hmm. exposed to things that I wish I could protect their eyes from seeing and their ears from hearing. And it makes me sad that I have to sit them down. You know, I have two teenagers in the house now, but even when they were younger, having to sit them down and talk to them about the whole idea of gay marriage, it it really saddened me. And so we've got to do our work, starting in our own families, to restore the culture as well. Yeah, absolutely. Friends, the book, Restoring America's Soul, Advancing Timeless Conservative Principles in a Wayward Culture. Hey, Rita, I just need your soundbite answer on this. I know it's off topic, but I'm sure it's it's something <laughs> you can speak to. The Electoral College, is it important? Yes, it's important. And I'll go back to the founders knew what they were doing, and they got so many things right. And we need to preserve their wisdom. Electoral college is important for a lot of reasons. But just one example is, you know, it's what ensures we don't end up with a president who's just favored by a few, you know, regional areas that are very populous. Um, We need to make sure our president is someone that can garner support from every corner and pocket of the nation and represent the whole country. Um, So let's not mess with that. Got it. All right. Thank you for weighing in on that, Rita. And uh, hey, how, how old are your teenagers? Uh, 13 and 15. Yeah. And, and you, you know, Rita, and, what's, re- what's remarkable is when I'll have folks in our school of ministry, so they have to be college age and up, but some of them are fresh out of high school. So they're just 18, and they'll talk about how dramatically the world has changed in the last two or three years. I'm thinking that's, that's really saying something quite remarkable. It is, yeah. Well, the Lord bless you in the home and in your advocacy and all the work that you're doing. Again, friends, Rita Dunaway, the author of the book, Restoring America's Soul. Thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the work that you do. Keep it up. All right, we're going for it. God bless. All right, friends, uh, let, let me give you a final word of encouragement. In 1983, in a season of very intense prayer and God moving in my life, the Holy Spirit spoke to me that I would be used in a revival that would touch the world. It was such an outlandish thought. 
here I was finishing up my PhD work at New York University, relatively unknown in any ministry capacity, virtually un- unknown aside from a few local churches in the area where I'd spoken and things like that. And God spoke this to me. We had just been involved in a powerful outpouring in a local church. And, and I remember when I heard it, I thought, you've lost your mind, man. You're crazy. But the more I'd pray, the more I'd feel this in my heart, the more I'd be reminded that God promised this. And it led to, I referenced it earlier in the show, years of praying and fasting and crying out, agonizing, God, you promised it. Where is this? And then he graced me with being on the front lines of the Brownsville Revival from 1996 to 2000. The literal attendance, cumulative of more than 3 million people, several hundred thousand different individuals responded to the altar calls to get right with God. And church historian Vincent Sinan said that it was the longest-running local church revival in American history. An extraordinary privilege to be in the midst of it. People came from 130 nations. And missionaries now sent out from our school that was raised up through that or all around the world. And the story continues. Starting in the late 90s, God began to stir my heart. And then very intensely in the early 2000s, that there was going to be a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution in America. That there would be a pushing back against the craziness of the world and society in which we're living. Yes, things would get dark and even darker, but that light would rise in the midst of it. And that I'd have the privilege of being right in the thick of it. Friends, God's not through with America. Oh, he cares about the whole world. He cares about every individual. But he's not through with America. Oh, we may go through extreme shaking, the likes of which we've never known. But I truly believe that the holy pushback will continue. That more and more of God's people will have awakening in their own lives. They will say, enough is enough. We're going to go do the will of God. And we're going to see it in front of our eyes. Friends, don't forget, go to JezebelsWarWithAmerica.com. Go there. You'll find out why when you get there. Back with you tomorrow for Thoroughly Jewish Thursday.